Hello and welcome to episode two of the Mark and Me podcast. As ever, I'm Mark. And I'm me, also known as Stuart. And today, <laughs> I, look, okay, hands up. I know last episode we said episode two would be Corey Feldman and that's quite a big name. Two weeks ago he wasn't such a big name, but he kind of went on a famous US talk show and made a bit of an arse of himself and I'd yeah, no, we have got him. <laughs> it's all recorded. It's all good. It's in the bag, and that's coming up very soon for you all. But before we go there, let's just talk about episode one. So we put it out there as a bit of fun, yep. just a bit of a tester. And let's just say the response has been very overwhelming. Number eight in the world on iTunes. Yeah, which is something I've never achieved with my actual podcast. It is my main one I spend all my time and energy doing. So, so this that's could be a Beatles weird. moment where you kind of Yoko Ono and we take you away. And... Yeah, yeah. Where I figure, you know, Wings, they're only the band the Beatles could have been. Exactly. And Mark and me are that for you right now. Yeah, seemingly so. Uh, we're the third most trending podcast on Podomatic. We were number five in their chart and the numbers have just hit over 20,000 downloads. So for episode one, I'm pretty chuffed with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I like to think it was basically down to you and me, nothing to do with Kevin Smith. Exactly. We carried him. Yeah. We helped sell him. He's lucky he has us. Very much so. So on to today's episode, we have actually got Corey Feldman coming up for you very, very soon. Corey Feldman was someone I've been trying to get an interview with for a very, very long time. I won't lie. It's took a lot of emails. It's took a lot of kind of constant kind of just chasing because he's a very kind of he he locks himself away and you don't see him much in the press until just now when he's released his angelic to the core album i'm sure we'll talk about that shortly but have you got any thoughts on his kind of way of music now instead of being that 80s film star i'll be honest i kind of played a few of the tracks off the album this morning and let's just say it wasn't my cup of tea okay but fair play to him he's doing what he wants excellent Basically, I wanted to speak to Corey because I'm a massive, massive fan of 80s films. We both are. The reason I wanted to speak to him is because he's in most of my favourite films. The Lost Boys, The Goonies, Stand By Me, The Burbs. Gremlins. Gremlins. You know, he was literally the kid I used to see when I was growing up in all my favourite films. I think he was kind of part of that first generation of like teen stars. I know you you obviously have like a James Dean that precedes him, but there was that group in the 80s, the kind of the Brat Pack of Corey Feldman, Corey Haim, Molly Ringwald, Emilio Estevez, all those guys that were doing John Hughes movies and St. Elmo's Fire and stuff like that. And obviously I wasn't around at the time, but as far as I can kind of see, they were the first big group of like teenage actor stars. Yeah, definitely. And Corey was the one that kind of had the most films out. The others kind of drifted away and didn't do much, but I kept seeing him cropping up in big films. I mean, from the early 80s till the end of the 80s, he's literally in a number one movie every year. Like I would think if, you know, 99% of film fans were putting together a list of, say, their top 10 favourite 80s movies, you'd assume at least one would contain Corey Feldman. Exactly. So it is a bit mind-blowing that he's actually spent over nearly an hour for this interview. Was it a bit of a mark-out moment for you? Was it overwhelming? It was, and you will hear now. He wasn't too warm at first, but I believe that as the interview goes on, you kind of see him warm to me, and by the end, I think it's quite a good interview. But you can hear that at first, he was a bit... He's not too fond of talking about his kind of films and his acting work. He's a lot more into his music now. I I think that'd be a good cue to start the interview for the people. I don't want to spoil too much. No, go ahead, run it. Here we go. Here's Corey Feldman. So the first question I've got today is, what was it that made you want to be an actor when you were first really young back in the 80s? I didn't want to be an actor. I never tried to be an actor. I was, um, 
you know, I mean, I don't know if you've read my book or not, but I have a book out called Choreography, <clears throat> that it was never my wishes or my intention at all. Uh, in fact, I was a bit of a, really what you would call a child slave. Um, you know, it was, it was forced upon me. You could say, well, you know, yeah, he really wanted it. It was all his idea. But then again, how many three-year-olds are very concise in their ideas and what their business plans for the future are? So was it your parents that forced you to do it, or...? Yes. Yes, my parents decided for me that it would be the best destiny for my life at three years old. And uh, once that decision was made, there was no turning back because I became very, uh, well, famous, fast and steady right away. When I research your films from the 80s, uh, when you go from kind of 84 to 1990, it's pretty much an absolute flawless run of films. When you think you've got to work with Joe Dante in Gremlins, you worked in The Goonies, The Next Year, Stand By Me, The Next Year, Lost Boys... That run of films must have blown your mind. Oh, that was only the beginning. <laughs> then we got, you know, License to Drive, Dream a Little Dream, The Burbs, Ninja Turtles, Rock and Roll High School Forever, uh, Ninja Turtles 3, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon. These were all number one movies. What was it like when you were at the peak of working with Joe Dante and Richard Donner and Rob Reiner and Joel Schumacher? It must have been incredible. Well, you know, I don't know what you consider a peak or what you consider a valley, but, you know, in my life, it's all hills and valleys, you know what I mean? So, um, I mean, you could cons- you could say, oh, that was the peak, but then again, Joe Dante and I you know, splattered together just five years ago, so, you know, maybe you could say that was a peak, or you could say, you know, me producing Lost Boys sequels for the Warner Brothers is a peak, or, you know, whatever, my new music career, you know, it's not a new music career, but my the fact that it's finally working. As far as being an actor goes, I was working quite steadily and being hired a lot as a kid. But I don't take any kind of credit for that because it's just, you know, again, it was part of a machine. You know, these weren't my dreams. These weren't my aspirations. These were what, you know, the path was laid before me and my parents put me on that path. So looking back, did you enjoy your time on set for Gremlins and Goonies and Stand By Me? Were you having a good time or were you just putting on a brave face? Well, for the most part, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed working with the other kids. I enjoyed working with Richard Donner very much. You know, Joe was great. Rob was great. Joel was great. You know, I mean, there were lots of good times, but there was also, it was work. You know, I mean, it wasn't a big play day. You know, it was, it was a lot of work. We're talking six-day weeks and, you know, 12-hour days. And that's a lot for a kid. You know, uh, at one point I did the Friday the 13th sequel. Oh, yeah, you forgot to mention that one. That was also a number one film, uh, as was Fox and the Hound, as was uh, Time After Time. So, I mean, you know, every movie I did, I think, you know, from probably 1976 to, I don't know, 2000 probably was, you know, number ones. But, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, you know, you go in waves. You know, you can't stay on top all the time and you can't, you know, I mean, I guess you can't fail all the time either because then you'll just be a big failure and nobody will work with you. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's all up and down. Did you have a part that you enjoyed the most, that you're most proud of? Um, yeah, it's called The Birthday. It's the only one that wasn't actually released in America. So uh, it wasn't released in England either, as far as I know. But the, I remember there were some screenings there. Um, but it was released mostly in the whole of Europe, like Spain, Germany, France, things like that. Was there a time that you really didn't enjoy? Was there a film that you wish you hadn't have starred in? Um, there was a few of those as well. <laughs> um, when I got out of, uh, you know, kind of the 
the dark phase of my life, as I call it, um, which was basically from 88 to 90. You know, there was about two years where I was a bit of a mess. And then right after that, I went through a rehabilitation process. And, um, you know, from like 90 to 94, maybe 95, there was a string of films that I did that I was not at all proud of and wish I hadn't done. Um, you know, I did a movie called Happy Campers, uh, which ended up being changed to Meatballs 4, unbeknownst to me. The film itself wasn't bad, but I was very embarrassed of the fact that they changed it to number four of a franchise of movies that I wasn't particularly fond of. Um, obviously, I would have never signed up or agreed to do that if I had known. But they changed it on me, so... I wasn't particularly thrilled with that. Um, and then there was a movie called Round Trip to Heaven, which I did with Zach Galligan um, from Gremlins, and wasn't particularly fond of that film. Um, there was one called Bikini Bandits, which I think was in like 96, 97. I don't even remember. But basically at about 2004 is where I kind of... So like I, let's say from like 91 to like 2004, there was some great films in there and then there was some shady films in there. You know, there was like Blown Away, which I really liked a lot, with Corey and I, um, which wasn't a theatrical film in, in America, but it was in most countries. And that was a great film. Um, and then there was, you know, uh, like Dream Little Dream 2, but then there was like National Lampoon's Last Resort, which I wasn't fond of at all. You know, I mean, it's it's hit and miss. You know, you can't love everything you do. Out of 100 films, you know, there's certainly 10 or 15 that I could have done without. For the most part, I think if you look at my body of work as a whole, when you're talking about 100 films, um, you know, I'm quite proud of most of them. I, I read the other day that Johnny Depp has never watched any of his films back. Do you watch every film you've starred in? Absolutely. Is there one that yeah. you go back to and watch a lot? Um, No, not really. I mean, you know, obviously I get requests all the time to go do screenings for movies like Goonies or Lost Boys or things like that because of their history. We just did a, a thing for Who Say uh, where we, we did an exclusive on my music video, Go For It, featuring Snoop Dogg. That's my new music video. And we did like kind of a commentary type, you know, watching it through. And then we did a big 30th anniversary one uh, for Stand By Me. So, um, you know, if it's for a certain promotional thing, like we, the last time I watched Stand By Me was five years before it when I watched it with Will and, and uh, Rob for the, uh, for the commentary for the 25th anniversary. So now we're at the 30th anniversary and we did a similar thing. But that's kind of the only time I really go and watch those old movies is if I'm, you know, being paid or doing it as a promotional thing for the film itself. Um, but that said... You know, I, if I'm going to watch anything, I'm going to watch my more current stuff because that's what I feel like I want people to see is my work today. I'm not one that's going to sit there and kind of pat myself on the back for work I did 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, it's pretty insignificant to me today, really. You starred with, you only have to go on your IMDb page, you starred with thousands of actors. Who would you say that you were most blown away by when you were on set by their acting ability? Well, I mean, you know, that's kind of neither here nor there. I don't think that I ever went on set and was like, oh, my God, you're finally a real actor. You know, <laughs> I got a chance to work with a lot of greats so far and plan on working with many more. So, you know, I mean, I'd say that the one that, I don't know, the most uh, rhythm with or the most connectivity with is obviously Corey Haim, and that's why we did so many films together. 
you know, there was a there was a chemistry there, a camaraderie that came across on screen and, you know, reflected our real life together. Um, but, you know, of course, I mean, working with Jason Robards was a complete honor and he was a consummate professional and a really nice man. Uh, I enjoyed that very much. I also enjoyed working with Tom, you know, Hanks very much. Um, you know, lots of great actors through the years. And what about directors? Who Who taught you the most and who did you learn from? Again, you know, there's so many different phases of my career. So, you know, it's it's very hard when you're looking at a 40-year career to say, well, this one moment was the one, you know. Yeah. There's, there's so many, you know. But I can say that, you know, Richard Donner and I had the greatest connection as we're still friends today. And I love him like a father. Um, and I love Joe very much, you know, as well, you know, so both of those guys became very close to me. I also got very close to Steven while we were working on the Goonies and Gremlins. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I somehow got this connection. I mean, Mark Rocco, you know, him and I had a great connection, great working relationship. As a matter of fact, I'm, you know, talking with his widow, you know, Lisa right now about possibly trying to, um, do kind of a special edition of Dream a Little Dream. You know, because that was a very powerful film and ended up becoming quite a cult classic. Um, but, you know, one of the greatest uh, relationships I guess I built was with um, this newest, the newer director, Eugenio Mera, who directed The Birthday. You know, and he's a really prolific, brilliant, artistic guy. He's from Spain. And, um, you know, his most recent release was uh, the, the piano. The, pian- the, the great piano, the grand piano something like that but um anyway it was with elijah wood and john cusack brilliant film um and he's a brilliant director and him and i got off so well that i ended up basically rewriting his whole script for him because um it was all done in kind of a loose translation of english from a spanish writer um so i helped him kind of translate that into you know um not only English, but kind of pop culture Americana of 1980s, because that was when the film was set. You know, even still today, I work with directors, and we end up hitting it off, and we have a great relationship, and then we end up usually doing other things together. So um, I have a tendency to just be drawn to the director. A lot of times, actors are drawn to their director, you know, where they they form this kind of inseparable bond, um, while they're working together, and then sometimes that carries out, you know, beyond the film. Brilliant. Was it true that in the Goonies you never got to see the ship or any of the treasure? For, and then the first time you actually saw it was when Richard Donner captured it on camera. Um, no, <laughs> that was the rumor they wanted everybody to believe, but it wasn't really the truth. If you watch the commentary that we did about I don't know ten years ago uh, with the whole cast and Richard Donner, we revealed the fact actually that most of the kids did see it, um, even though Donner believed. That uh, that nobody saw it, but it was in fact seen. <laughs> Fair <laughs> Many enough. Many times, you know, the stagehands left the door open and things like that. And, you know, there was supposed to be a big black cloak surrounding it, but many times that was left open as well. You know, they'd be loading things in on a weekend or something, and the door would be wide open. So, <clears throat> since we worked on Saturdays, you know, I'd be driving by on my bike and you know accidentally see it or something like that. You know, most of the kids did anyway. Amazing. So in 1990, when you did the voice acting work on the Turtles film as Donatello, how was that for an experience from not being in front of the camera and actually just being involved in pure vocal work? Um, it was all right. I mean, not my favorite project. No. <laughs> I was very, very, very limited with my involvement, you know, to be honest. I just kind of came in and did my part and that was it. 
And my final question regarding your films, what is your top five films of all time? And that's not your own, but the films that you love the most. Um, I don't know if I can relegate it to top five. I mean, I could probably do top ten, but um, you know, whenever I do my top ten, I also include the sequels as part of the film. That's my cheat, right? So, I mean, I would probably go with The Godfather as you know, one, two, and parts of three. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, Star Wars as well. I mean, I love the Star Wars franchise. Um, of course, especially four, five, and six. I like. You know, number two, all right, and and the third one I thought was quite good. What did and you think I, to seven recently? Yeah, you know, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, if if Han Solo hadn't died, it would have been a great movie. That was a bit of a tearjerker, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't just a tearjerker. It was more that right just pissed me off. <laughs> <to be laughs> honest. You know, it was like, why did this have to happen? You have this great movie, and everything's happening perfectly, and it was all I was there. You know what I mean? I was a hundred percent in, and then I just felt like. You know, they let the actor dictate, you know, the course of action, you know, which I've never seen happen really in a movie of that size before. And um, to be honest, I'm not quite pleased about it. And I might have to have a talk with Harrison. Yeah, man. Are you worried about Luke in episode eight? Do you think he might be going down the same place? <laughs> String him up as well, right? Just one um, by one. Yeah, exactly. Now I have a feeling Luke will probably be around for the next few. I hope we see a bit more of him in the next one. Well, yeah, he didn't quite have the same career as Harrison Ford, so I think that might have something to do with it. I mean, Mark Hamill is actually a friend, and he's a very nice guy, and, uh, you know, he was doing, you know, Disney cartoons and, you know, Batman and things like that, voice acting, you know, up until they, they did this. So I'm very happy to see him working as an actor again, which is where he deserves to be on camera, you know. It's amazing that he was only in episode seven for about two minutes, but stole the whole film. Yeah, well, because it was powerful. You know, he's a powerful actor. And that's what everybody wants to see. The thing, I guess, that pissed me off the most is, you know, I really just wanted to see the, the moment between Han and Luke again, you know, the reconnection. And I think that they should have given the audience that moment before killing him off. You know, I think if that would have happened, it probably would have made it a little bit easier for everybody to swallow, don't you? Big time. Totally agree. Give me a couple more, then. You've given me Star Wars. What else? Uh, well, I gave you Star Wars as a series. I gave you Godfather as a series. And then I would go to the, you know, traditionals like um, Wizard of Oz, of course, um, Willy Wonka. And um, I'd have to go with Color Purple. Ooh, nice. Uh, I mean, it's one of, you know, if I had 10, I could go longer. You know, I mean, I'd like to say, you know, obviously that there's so many great films, you know, but... Um, Color Purple is in there, and then, you know, E.T. would be in there as well. But then I also have my, my good friend Richard Donner's films, um, which he's done some amazing films as well. Um, you know, I think Radio Flyer is a brilliant movie. Um, I also like uh, Memento. What a film. A That's amazing. Yeah, that's a brilliant film, isn't it? Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the genre, obviously. I mean, I worked in it, I grew up in it, so I still love it today. And, you know, I have a big screen and a projector, and I watch all of these films almost every night. You know, I mean, uh, I don't watch my own films, but I watch other people's. And that's not to say that I'm opposed to watching my own films again, but, you know, if it's, if it's a new film and it's something that's just come out, uh, for example, I had a movie out in theaters, you know, two years ago called The M Word. And... Um, 
you know, I mean, it's a, it's a cute little film. It's a romantic comedy. It's not something I could watch a hundred times, but I enjoyed watching it, you know, three or four times when it first came out and showing it to people and stuff like that. But it's not like my greatest work, so therefore I wouldn't get hung on it, you know what I mean? But, um, but there's, I do, you know, a lot of kind of interesting artistic films that most people might not even know about. Um, there's one called... Um, well, it was originally called Operation Belvis Bash, and then it got changed to the name Zero Dark Dirty. Uh, but that's a great film because I play this really like awkward, weird, comedic character with prosthetic makeup and all that sort of thing. And um, and I quite enjoy doing those. But then there's a movie I've got coming out, which I think everybody's going to like a lot. It's a cult film, um, and it's called Corbin Nash, and actually is directed by an English director by the name of Ben Jagger. And his brother is Dean Jagger, who is on the show Game of Thrones. Um, and he stars in it as Corbin Nash. So it's it's me playing a tranny vampire. And then you've got Malcolm McDowell, Rutger Hauer. You know, kind of a great list of, of amazing some great actors. names. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> lot, lots of English folks in there as well. So. And when are we going to get to see that? Is that out next year? Uh, I believe it's this year. You know, I think they're trying to get it out in time for the Halloween season. Awesome. Well, we'll keep a lookout for that. So, I know that your main love now, and this was demonstrated very recently with your album release, but you're focused so much more on music now. I wouldn't say it's my main love, I would just say it's where my focus is at the moment. I've spent 10 years developing this most recent album, and, um, you know, it's, it's certainly a labor of love, and it, you know, it ties into uh, this company that I've created, Corey's Angels, um, which is a 360 development management and production entity where we find, you know, young, talented, beautiful women, and we help them build careers on it. So, you know, we work with everything from actresses to musicians <clears throat> to singers to dancers, you know, you name it. Um, so it's kind of an all-encompassing you know, mind, body, and soul type thing. So we're doing everything from helping these girls establish their careers to some of them who are already established and doing quite well, and then just bringing them into our fold. Um, but it all ties into the musicality, because a lot of it has to do with music, and it's music-centric. Um, and so we've put all of this into this giant double album. And um, the album came out a few weeks ago, so far... All the comments I've heard have been great. I haven't seen any official like critic reviews from it yet, um, but I have heard lots of fans' comments, and so far everything I've heard has been pretty exceptional. I mean, truthfully, everybody that buys the album writes me and says, I love it, I love it, it's amazing, it's your best work ever, it's really incredible. Um, so people are really digging it. I know the song, uh, which is our new single, is called Go For It, and we have a video, which is on my YouTube channel, you can find it there. And the song Go For It features Snoop Dogg. And, um, you know, people are going crazy for it. I mean, it's hitting the Billboard charts right now as we speak. I've been told that we'll be definitely in Billboard either this week or next. We premiered on the Billboard Most Added chart at number nine, which is a pretty big thing in the United States. So uh, all is well with it. So with Angelic to the Core, 22 tracks, that is very brave in the fact that a lot of bands don't release double albums. When you think, like, the last one I can remember that was really iconic was the Smashing Pumpkins, um, and that was probably 20 years ago. How, how was it, sort of, sitting there well, you know, like, and writing was, that many? Well, it was brave, I guess, to even, you know, do something as audacious as a double album, and especially in the pop genre. You know, you hear 
classic rock albums, you know, obviously that are double albums and things like that, but, you know, or soundtracks, film soundtracks or things. But it's very rare that you find a pop album that's got a double album. So, I mean, I can't say I know of any examples, to be honest. Um, I don't think there is any. I don't think there is either. So I guess I've made history then. Well, cool. You know, I mean, um, it's it's a labor of love. And in some ways, to me, it does feel a bit like a greatest hits album because I've been releasing these singles for so long, you know, in, in, in gearing up and pre-promotion and such. So, like, I started, you know, three years ago or three and a half years ago with releasing Ascension Millennium. And we released that just as a random single. We didn't really tell anybody what it was about or why it was coming out. We just kind of released it and threw it out into the ether. And then um, it did quite well, but we didn't release it as a radio single. We only released it, you know, just on iTunes. And then we put out a video. And when we put out the video, we did it through MTV. And it got buzzworthy status within 12 hours. And then, you know, within the first week, it garnished uh, 250,000 views. So it went quite viral quite fast. And I think that was largely due to the fact that, number one, MTV did a great push for us on it and really put a press release out that grabbed people's attention, but also because I'd never done a music video. So obviously I'd been known for my dancing and I'd been known for music, but I'd never really put out anything music video-wise that was anything to speak of other than some live performances. So I think it just kind of ignited people's imagination a bit. And then um, we followed it up with a couple more and, you know, those seem to do well. We started releasing to radio. Uh, the first one we released to radio was Everybody featuring Doc Ice. And we did that as an independent and digital radio release. And it went all the way to number 13 on independent digital radio charts. Um, and it ended up staying at number 13 for three weeks. So then the next single re we released was called Remember 222, which is a tribute to Corey Haim. And that one went all the way to number two. And number one on Lucky Star Radio, which is just a, an internet station, but on the general, it went to number two on internet radio. So um, we did very, very well with all these singles, and they kind of kept building momentum. So we're like, okay, well, now we've got to save like the big guns for the release. So we put out the one with Snoop Dogg, and I'm pretty sure the next single may be, in fact, the one with Fred Durst, which is called Seamless. Um, but we've got a few more singles left in us, and I think we're going to shoot a few more videos. And, you know, when you listen to the album, not only is there those songs, which, like, as I've said, they've been released over the last three years, but there's also songs in there that go back to some of my earlier films. For example, there's a, a song called Negativity, which was on the Dickie Roberts soundtrack, another number one film that I was in, by the way. Um, that was in 2005, 2006, something like that. But anyway, so I provided the song Negativity for their soundtrack, and it ended up on an album for Hollywood Records. But we've never released it on a solo album of mine. So therefore, even though it's been out before, it was never out, you know, by my company or, you know, for my distribution. So we had to kind of wait the seven years for that to be done, and then we put it on one of my albums. Um, and then there's also... Um, um, Take a Stand, which was in uh, Operation Belvis Bash, Zero Dark Dirty. That was the end credit song. <clears throat> so there's, you know, probably about five or six songs that had been previously released, just not released under my label or, you know, from my company. So it is really kind of a best of, isn't it? Well, it's... Mm, not yes, deliberately, no, but it's it's kind of... 
Yeah. But it's got stuff people will be familiar with. So it's not like opening a record that you don't know anything about. You know, it's more like, you know, we've been slowly kind of building and building and building. And now that we're, you know, four singles out and, you know, like I said, a couple films from the soundtrack, you know, it makes it fun because if you were listening to 22 songs that you've never heard of, it might get a bit boring. But, you know, the fact that you kind of hear something that you remember from a film you saw once and you're like, oh, wait, what's, uh, I remember that one. You know, it kind of makes it a little bit more fun for the listener, I think. Think. This album's very collective in the different genres of music. Like you said, you've got songs with Snoop Dogg, which are quite rap. You've got kind of that sort of new metal sound with Fred Durst. You've pretty much conquered a lot of different genres that so many bands try and do, but you've managed to do it all by yourself on one album. Well, hopefully any of it's any good. <laughs> I mean, like I said, so far people are seeming to like it, and and the you know response has been pretty favorable. So I'm very pleased. Um, but we did. I mean, I, you know, when you listen to the <clears throat> the album as a whole, it takes you on a musical journey, really. So it's like when you start off, you're in kind of the world of EDM and dance and everything that's kind of happening right now on radio. But then you go from that into hip-hop and kind of you know the trends of where we're at today and then you know you kind of go from that kind of easily transition into a bit more rock and then it gets kind of harder and harder as it goes and then we pull it back and you have some kind of you know more r&b style stuff and you know mainstream pop but it's all there and it's just kind of it has an ebb and flow about it so that you really do feel like you're on a, on, on a journey and it also tells a story so it is a concept album and it does have you know and again i, I believe it may be the first total pop concept album because i can't really think of another one of those either um you know i know michael had talked about doing a concept album but he never did it janet was talking about doing a concept album of sorts which she's done you know, sort of concept albums, I guess, that tie in together, like the one with, um, um, I forget what it was called, but the one where she was like a computer chick or something, and she was like listening to the computers. Um, so, I mean, there's been loose concept albums, but I mean, this one actually has skits that tie it all together, and it all works with the artwork and everything kind of fits as a format that you could almost imagine as a theater of your mind, which is what we do with my other band, The Truth Movement. You know, I mean, I guess I learned that style really, um, from working heavily on, on stuff like that, which, of course, was all inspired by, you know, your homeland and, and the music that, you know, comes from, from you guys over the pond, you know, because of my great influence of listening to a lot of the Beatles and Pink Floyd and, you know, people like that, the Who, you know, who really were the originators of the concept album. And, um, you know, with my band The Truth Movement, you know, we, we kind of liken ourselves to those bands and to that that time and that era, you know, which is why, like, on our last Truth Movement album, we included the likes of John Karen and Scotty Page and, uh, of course, the great Storm Thurgeson who did our artwork. So we did that intentionally to, you know, keep it kind of organic and virtuistic to, you know, the genre of music that it is. So what influences you in songwriting? I know you've talked about a lot of the past and life, um, your dedication to Corey Felm, stuff like this, but if you were to go forward now and write another album, say a follow-up to Angelic to the Core, do you mm -hmm. find yourself writing all the time when you're on the road or at home? Are you always writing lyrics? Are you that guy with a notebook? or what? what how do you no, go? No, I get creatively inspired really by the idea of, okay, now we've got something to do. You know, I know that's hard to explain, but like, if I know that I want to start another album, 
then I just kind of sit down and start thinking of the things that, you know, are kind of in my, my grasp at the moment. So, um, for example, when I know that I've got a deadline and I know that I've got, you know, five more songs to complete or 10 more songs to complete or however it's going, you know, then I know that I've got to write these songs and I kind of know around the ideas of what I want to write about because they're about current events or, you know, things that are happening to me emotionally. But, you know, I tend to really write about just whatever is, you know, is on my mind at the moment, really. I mean, it. I don't know, it's with 22 songs, you know, like on my last album, you know, they're so diverse in what I'm talking about, you know, where, you know, one's a tribute to Corey Haim, and then you've got, you know, a lot of them that are kind of centered around the theme of good versus evil, because that's really what the concept of the album is about. It's about good versus evil and heaven and hell and, you know, biblical stuff. Um, you know, because in the end, I believe that we are in very dark times, And, um, and I think with, you know, things like this Trump thing happening in America and what you guys are going through over there with your new leader, you know, it is, it's very scary times for the world. And I think that now more than ever, art needs to reflect what's happening in society and the fact that, you know, we must really all come together and, and make a stand for what we believe in. You know, certainly the people on the dark side have made themselves very clear. Um, so now it's time for those who are on the other side, uh, on the light side, to, to do as much as they can to form together to protect ourselves against the darkness that's out there. It's not a good time, is it? It's pretty bleak, the future right now. Well, I mean, I don't see it as bleak. I see it as hopeful. I try to stay optimistic. I do believe that Hillary will win in the end. Um, so I think we'll be okay. And uh Boy, I don't know what's going on over there, but I'm hoping that somehow that guy gets overturned and the power, you know, gets overturned back to the sane people. We were all thinking that we were going to stay in Europe and that we all kind of took it for granted. Then we woke up one day and we were out of Europe. So with Donald Trump, you never know. I, I, I have this horrible feeling that you could wake up one day and everyone could be surprised. Yeah, well, if that happens, I'll be, uh, I'll be moving to Canada. Yep. <laughs> well, you're welcome here. You can come here, and uh, well, it's not much better, but it's uh, it's not going to be led by Trump. Well, that's for sure. I mean, there, there couldn't be a worse leader than Trump. That's for sure. You know, we know that. But at the end of the day, um, you guys have lost half of your money, haven't you? It's 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 a bad time here. We uh, we're losing everything every day, and it's just it's not a good time. But like you said, be optimistic. There's hope. It can't always be down. That's right, you know, and look at when 9-11 happened and Bush was leading the world, you know, it was kind of like, oh my God, we're all in trouble, what's going to happen, There's, you know, we're never going to see the light of day again, because we're all going to just be, you know, vanished, I mean, you know, really, I thought that was it, we were done, and, um, you know, somehow we made it, somehow we managed through that terrible eight years, and we got out of it, and we ended up with, you know, a bit better off with Obama, but, you know, it took a long time to correct all of the problems and the mistakes that Bush built in our country, and worldwide, with the fall of the banks, and everything else that happened, um, but, you know, I'm hoping now that we can all start building towards a brighter future, and I think that if we can get Hillary in the office, and we can get Bill back in the White House, um, and I think if she picks, you know, I, my personal, you know, take on it is she should obviously hire Bernie Sanders as her VP, since he was the most popular, you know, opponent, um, and I think if they put both of them together on a ticket, it's a win-win situation, you can't lose, And not only that, but they've got, you know, 
they both have positive ideas and they're both passionate and caring people about the future of the world, which is nice to hear for a change because I don't think anybody else really cares. They only care about their pocketbooks. Very, very true. Are you are you quite a religious man? I hear you talking a lot about heaven and hell and good and bad. And Well, I'm not religious, um, funny as that might seem, <laughs> but I am spiritual. Yeah. So, um, you know, I do pray on a daily basis and, and that's kind of how I keep my peace and serenity. Um, so I believe in God, you know, I just don't believe in, in per se going to church or temple or whatever to have to be religious or to have to be spiritual. I think that, you know, spirituality comes from within. And if you believe in something bigger than yourself and you don't think that you're a God, then, you know, you're on the right path. That's fair enough. What's the future like for you? Have you got? I mean, when I listen to your album, I think to myself, "How is he going to pull this off live? How many people does he need? How's he going to trans?" <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Well, I think it's easy enough, really. I mean, look, we went out. I don't know if you heard the last Truth Movement album, um, which was uh, Technology Analogy, and that's the one that I did with the boys from from Pink Floyd. But you know. Um, that was incredibly hard to pull off live because, I mean, we were running about 130 tracks per song. Um, but the way you do it, you know, these days is you trigger certain, you know, sound effects or background noises or things like that from, you know, an Apple computer, right? As long yeah. as you computer with you, you can run tracks behind it and then just play the real instrumentation live. And I think that's good enough for the crowd. They're used to it anyway these days. Um you know, and then you go see acts like Britney Spears or, you know, people like that where, you know, 90% of it is pre-recorded. I would never do that. You know, I would never not sing live. What's the point of doing a live show if you're not going to sing live, you know? Um, but for me, personally, my experience is I'd like it to be as authentic and organic as possible. Um, so the way we do it is we're actually, you know, we went out last year. We played a couple shows like Bonnaroo um, where we had a full angel band and it was a band made of beautiful talented women who look like you know models angels whatever and they're all like mi graduates so they're like top of the line hardcore musicians and um and we want to do something similar that was kind of a test run to see how it would work and before we put the album out so now that the album's out you know we really want to see where we do on the billboard charts and how things go and um you know if we can really conquer some hit singles and i think if we do then we're going to start getting offers from booking agents and promoters all over the world <clears throat> we already have offers right now to do a couple of major talk shows uh in the united states which would be seen by millions and millions of people as well as a couple uh in stores and live performances and things like that which are looking very exciting so we're already getting some of those offers but you know, I think the lion's share is really going to come when we hit the Billboard charts because then everybody's going to go, okay, they're not playing. Um, but we are quite prepared to put together a new band of angels, uh, which, of course, I would only use top-of-the-line musicians that happen to be beautiful women. And we'll go out and do a tour and we'll do everything live. I mean, the only thing about it is that we keep as part of our band a DJ. Um, and because of the EDM experience and part of it, um, you know, it only makes sense to have an EDM DJ there. So fortunately, the main angel, or the mangel as we call her, which is Angel Courtney Ann, um, is also a DJ, and her nickname is DJ AC. So what's been happening is either DJ AC and I will go out and do like some club appearances where she just spins and I sing to the track, or for a full live concert, she'd be providing backing tracks alongside the live instrumentation. So you would definitely get the full live experience if we tour. When we tour, I should say. 
do you think because obviously if you're doing your tour for angelic to the core you wouldn't be able to kind of do a 22 song set list do you think it'd be quite hard to pick your perfect say 12 or 13 tracks to play live um well to be honest uh we generally when i I mean at least when i play with truth movement we tend to do anywhere from an hour to two hours yeah um and so i would probably do the same thing with the solo tours in fact what i'm planning for this next tour uh when it happens is we want to do greatest hits as well so it's not just the 22 songs that we're pulling but we're going to go back to the Love Left album, the former Child Actor album, and even some of the film soundtracks where it didn't appear necessarily on an album. I think fans would get a great kick out of me doing you know, some of the songs from Rock and Roll High School or Something in Your Eyes from the Dream a Little Dream soundtrack, which was my first single in 1989. You know, I mean, songs like that that the fans grew up on, and even if they're just more of a pop culture phenomenon and they're not necessarily tied to an album, they still resonate. So... Um, you know, I think it'll be a lot of fun for the fans because we're going to actually give them, you know, their first experience, the first time they have the opportunity to hear some of these older songs that they grew up with live in person. So I think that we'll probably end up with a quite lengthy show that'll probably end up around an hour and a half and we'll probably have 30 some songs, I would imagine. Any plans to come over to us and see us? I would sure hope so. (laughs) Um, my my goal is to do a world tour I mean that's what we really want to do so if anybody out there is listening and you happen to be a booking agent or you happen to be a promoter for the UK please give us a ring because uh, you know it's we don't know who to contact over there you know this is all very organic I mean literally my studio is in my home the record company is in my home and we're so raw and organic and this is real I mean this is no joke when we had to do a recall of 2000 CDs and get them turned around within a week to make sure that they were in record stores, you know, within the week of the release. Uh, we literally had five people sitting in my living room, opening each CD, pulling out the wrong CDs and adding back the new ones, which is where I came up with the idea of doing this golden ticket thing. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not. But I've been seeing tweets from winners where they get the, uh, it's like Willy Wonka inside the CD case with so many. Yeah, to, yeah. Amazing. So, Well, we decided we wanted to do something to make it fun and also kind of say sorry for the delay. So what I did is I personally signed each one of the tickets and then we implanted them into various CDs and various boxes. And so I don't really know who's getting them. You know, we just send them out randomly. Um, And then we also put in 22 signature cards of different things. Some are baseball cards, some are little mini posters or whatever. But we sign those as well and we put those into the mix. So there's about 44 in total. Um, But what that means is that anybody who opens one with Corey's Golden Ticket is got automatically two VIP tickets to any show in the area, or it doesn't even have to be in their area. I mean, literally, they could be living in England, hear about a show in New York, decide to fly out for it, and as long as they've got that ticket, all they have to do is show it to the guy at the box office, and they will not only be let in, but they will be put at the front of the stage, and more than likely will get to meet me as long as I have the ability to do it at that venue. So as long as we're doing a meet and greet on that particular night, I will make sure that the golden ticket winners get a chance to say hello. So it's a very encompassing thing. And, um, you know, I think that that makes it more appetizing and more appealing for, you know, the fans to want to buy the physical CD. Because let's face it, 90% of our traffic is digital these days. Um, But, you know, people have been buying the physical CDs. And I think that the idea of opening it and catching a surprise inside is certainly helping with that. So just to remind all the listeners... 
you can still get a chance to win. Um, we've, I think we've gotten six so far. Six have been found out of 22, which means, what, 18, no. 16. Yeah, uh, 16 remain. Yes, exactly. Amazing. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's still 16 of them floating around out there, which means there's, you know, a very decent chance for somebody to win free tickets to the concert. I like the fact that it is organic still. Um, it's nice to know. It's like to be able to have that control of your own label and not have someone telling you what you should release and when you should release it. I like You've got full control, and that must be pretty special. It is special, and I think it's very rare these days. You know, the fact that we self-distribute, we get ourselves into all the digital providers, we get ourselves into the stores. I mean, we're talking to Amoeba Records in L.A. right now about carrying the album, which is great, you know. So there's still some record stores left, and we're getting some interest from them, you know, which is great as well. Because, you know, obviously they're very limited on the uh, amount of space they even have to carry all the albums that are trying to get spots. Um but it is also nice that, you know, like right now, um, last night, for example, I was in the studio till the wee hours producing a new artist under my label. Um, now, we haven't signed the artist yet, but we've agreed to do a single and see how it goes. A very talented young guy who, you know, is a singer, songwriter, rapper, producer. Uh, he plays drums fluently, he plays guitar, he plays piano and keyboards. So, I mean, you know, he's a guy kind of like myself. He's multi-talented and he's got a lot going on. So I thought, you know, why not give him a crack? So, you know, we're open to doing things like that too and putting other artists out under our label. So, you know, we're, we're growing. We're definitely growing. We're not just a, a self-indulgent label anymore. <laughs> so, so that's, that's amazing. And I mean, how do you go about finding out about new talent and finding these artists? Well, you know, to be honest, Facebook goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people usually contact me either on Twitter or Facebook. And this is, you know, most of the girls that have worked with Corey's Angels in the past couple of years, that's how we find them. You know, they, they hit me up on Twitter and they tweet me a bunch and then eventually I notice. And then I'll say, well, let me check out their Facebook profile, you know, and then I go to their Facebook profile. And if I see that they've got something going on and, you know, that they're very serious about what they're doing and they've got modeling, you know, they got pro modeling shots and they've got demos and they've got video of them playing and things like that. Then I check it out and I go, OK, well, they've got real talent. Let's give it, a, you know, give it a go. And then I'll I'll arrange some sort of a phone conference or something like that to make sure that they're a real person and that they're you know, catfished. Exactly. Which we've had a few of those. Trust me, people. Even we've gone as far as having people that were supposed to fly out to appear in a video and found out that they weren't really them after we already took their sizes and got their costumes ready. Oh, my God. So, you know, that's, we, we learn from our mistakes, right? So Big time. that was before I knew that, you know, catfish and that sort of thing actually existed. So I just went with it. But now that we've been burned once, you know, it's like, okay, every person, we've got a screening process to make sure that they're even real before I even get on the phone with them. But now, <laughs> you know, once we know that they're real, we know they're legit, then I do get on the phone with them and I get engaged. And if they can back it up and they are that person and they have that talent, then we'll arrange for them to come out and, you know, either do a, a test shoot or come out and do, uh, you know, a demo in the studio with us or however we're planning it. But the point is, is we create the opportunities when they're persistent enough to actually get my attention and show me that they've got what it takes. And in this case, um, the guy that I'm producing, which is the first male artist that I've worked with under my label, um, found me and, and basically applied to be in my video for Go For It because we put out kind of a 
open casting and we said, look, we're looking for friends in the area. Anybody who wants to come on down, be part of the video. No big deal. We're doing it in three days. So anybody who sees this and is readily available in the next three days, just come on down to this location and there you go. And then I let my producer deal with, you know, who was going to actually make it in and who wasn't. But, um, but we kind of threw that open invitation out and this guy, had responded and said, yeah, I'd love to be part of the video. How can I be a part of it? What can I do? And I said, well, you know, right now we're just looking for extras in the scene. He said, great. Well, I'm a singer. I'm a dancer. I do all this stuff. And we're like, look, all we need right now is some background actors, but thank you very much. Um, and then when he showed up that day, I met him and he kind of gave me his resume and told me all the stuff he could do and asked if I'd be interested in, you know, recording with him. And I said, well, we're, you know, kind of focused on the album right now and releasing it in publicity and we're doing a ton of promotion. But, you know, when we have time, when we can get around to it, we'll check out your demos. And I did. And, you know, I thought it wasn't really that great, but there was some promise. And I said, well, I'm sure if I, you know, got involved and produced it and helped you write it a bit, then it might get, you know, strong enough. So, um, so we made a deal and he came down and, you know, rented some studio time for my studio and worked on it. And I eventually came in and started helping him along. And, and next thing you know, we've actually got a great track. So you never know what can happen. So exciting to hear this. And it's, uh, it must be amazing for these people to be given a chance. Yeah, well, I figure everybody deserves a chance. You know what I mean? Like, um, as much as I want to get to the top of the pops, you know, I'm sure everybody else does too. So, you know, I figure if I can actually make it and, you know, earn a place of respect, I mean, you look at any other artist who's done what I'm doing, you know, and, and they've all kind of gotten there at a certain point, right? Like, I mean, Prince brought up how many great new artists under his kind of brand, you know, as he was building it. I mean, that's what he became known for, you know, is bringing up other artists alongside of him. Of course, most of them were women as well. But, you know, every once in a while, he'd throw a male artist in there. And um, and the same for MJ and the same for, you know, Madonna. You know, everybody, I think, that's a real artist. They want to give back, you know, because at the end of the day, you know how hard it is. You know how much work it is and how much struggle. And, you know, it takes a lot to just get your foot in the door. So... If you have a way of helping another artist, you know, the way that you're getting the handout, you know, it's kind of like you want to give back, you want to do your part. It's amazing. I'm not going to touch upon this because I've read about it in the media about kind of the dark times you've been through with drugs and sexual abuse. Now at your age with your music and your marriage, is life the best it's been? Are you, you sound happy, you look happy. I'm really glad to see you've kind of come out of all these dark times and now you've got the light. Well, thank you very much. Um, well, I'm not married, so let's clear that up. Okay, um, well, you got your girlfriend. There you go, there you go. Um, you know, and I've got my angels. Yes. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by beauty all the time. And the most beauty that I'm surrounded by, of course, is my son. And that's honestly what makes me the happiest. Um, although I must say I do love my girlfriend, Courtney, and I do love the angels and all of that. But, you know, the... the, the pure joy and the true joy and happiness comes from my son because you know he's my responsibility and you know I started raising him kind of going oh my god what have I got myself into you know how am I going to do that how am I going to be a responsible father because like I know my parents screwed up immensely and I wouldn't want to do that to another kid you know what I mean I can't I can't ever let a kid down um and that's a big thing with me. I'm very hard on myself about that. I always have to keep my promises and I have to keep my word and make sure that I do right by people and especially by my own son. So, um, 
you know, doing it as a married couple in the beginning was difficult enough, but then when I got divorced and it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Now I'm a single man and, you know, whenever I'm single, I'm crazy and I'm out of my mind and I go and I date a lot and I, you know, have a lot of wild experiences, but I can't do that if I'm a dad. So I had to really kind of create a divide within myself of like, okay, when my kid's home, it's family time and I don't go out and I don't do anything and I focus only on him. You know, I mean, obviously you have to do work still, so you can't get around that. But I even save the lion's share of my work for after he goes to bed. You know what I mean? I spend the day with him, and then once he goes to bed, then I go and lock myself away and get the rest of my work done. Um, and that's that's the way that I've managed to find my balance. And then when he's not here and he's visiting with his mom, well, then it's, you know, kind of my world, and I can do whatever I want because I'm bored and I've got nothing else to do, so I try to make the most of it. Um, but when I'm with him, I'm, I'm the happiest and I'm the most complacent. You see so many people get involved in drugs and not get to talk about it, and unfortunately it defeats them, but you've... You've defeated a lot of bad times, and it's uh, it's really nice to see. I'll be honest with you, it's, it's beautiful. Thank you. Well, I'm very, very grateful to be where I am today. Trust me, uh, you know, there were many times in my life where I didn't know what the outcome would be or if I would ever see the light again, you know. Uh, the darkness was all-encompassing, but, you know, much like the album cover, I have been through hell, and I feel that it's the angels that lifted me up. I mean, obviously God, but you know, in physical form, there's been many angels in my life that have been there for me. And they're not all girls, you know, there's, there's male angels in my life too, like Richard Donner or my friend Brian or my manager, Phil. I mean, there's people who've really stuck their neck out on the line for me, um, to, to get me through the dark times. And, and if they hadn't been there, if I hadn't had friends, I would be nowhere right now. But, you know, I have this amazing divine faith and the reason why I have this faith is because I honestly believe at the bottom of my heart that God would not have brought me as far as I've come to drop me on my face. So with that faith, I believe every day when I wake up that something good is bound to happen. And I think that positive energy, you know, really goes a long way. It kind of works like this. We can create whatever future we want. All of us have this power. It's the power of belief and divine intervention. And I believe that through the power of belief, the power of positive energy, what we put out there is what we get back. So if we do positive things for the world and we put out positive messages and we believe in positive things, we're going to get that back as a result. However, if you walk around talking about, oh, I hate this and I hate that and, you know, the world sucks and you suck and this person's well, what do you think you're going to get back but a bunch of negativity? So people who sit there and dwell in the negative and the dark side of the problem and, you know, think about Satan and think about this and think about that and, you know, dress in black and, you know, put goth makeup on and, you know, cut themselves and all these kinds of ways of self-torture and self-deprecation. You know, um, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not going to lead you to anything positive. You're not going to ever see a positive outcome taking those steps. Whereas if we look inward and realize, look, I'm still here. I'm still on the planet. I'm still alive. And I've still got a chance to start my future because every day when we wake up, as long as we're not in jail or dead, it's a day to restart our lives and make it better than it was yesterday. And for me, that's an everyday reprise. Every day when I wake up, my goal is to make it better than it was yesterday. And I think if everybody got into this idea of knowing that you can create your future, 
Like, literally, you can create your future. Like, if you see, what what is your future? What do you want to be? Like, if you see in your mind's eye, like, hey, I want to see myself living in a mansion with, you know, a bunch of monkeys. And that's going to be my future, is like, me and a bunch of monkeys. And that's what I want. And that's all I'm going to accept. And you believe that in your heart of hearts every single day. Guess what? One day, you will end up in a mansion with a bunch of monkeys. Isn't that what <laughs> but, Michael Jackson did? Well, I guess. <laughs> well, I think he might have seen a bit more than that because he had a lot of turns. But, um, you know, in the end, I don't know if he was happy. But I think in the end, he also stopped believing in his own happiness. That's the problem. He got, you know, engulfed and overwhelmed by the negativity thrown in him. Because the other side of that is when the dark side sees you making advancements in your own career, in your own future, in your own whatever – it tries to kind of claw at you and throw negativity in your path because the darkness doesn't want the light to win. But at the end of the day, the light always wins over darkness. So it only takes one small candle to light an entire room of darkness. So remember that. Not enough people think that. Too many people are too busy. Too many people are not even got the time to stop and think like that. And if they did, this world would be a better place. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I say for today, let's just all have a grateful list of what we have to be grateful for, because that's really what the solution is. You know, if you'd spend more time with gratitude and being grateful for what you already have and stop spending so much time thinking about what you don't have, then you have time to appreciate what's in front of you. And then your your, your future just automatically looks brighter. I'm, I'm loving this. I, I read so much of your interviews and people that tweet and articles and stuff that always present negativity but i've spoke to you today for an hour now and it's been one of the most positive conversations i've ever had so thank you god bless thank you very much i'm happy to hear it so a pretty interesting interview there i thought and quite contrasting to what you got out of kevin smith the complete opposite yeah i'm not saying it's not a positive interview because i think towards the end you really hear him kind of warm and he, he's really being himself he's kind of letting his guard down and not worrying about everything he says and the interview is very negative at the start because you it was, it was quite a surprise to me he didn't want to be an actor his parents forced it on him so it's that for me was a bit of a oh no like yeah where do i go i with had this? an hour's worth of talking about gremlins you know <laughs> what what do we do now but you can hear that his passion is his music now and he really has put his heart and soul into this and he, he genuinely believes that he's ready to do a world tour with this Corey and the the angels yeah so as far as the movie stuff goes where, where do you sort of stand on his feeling that he was a child slave yet at the same time he kind of says he actually enjoyed those movies and he, he lists actors he enjoyed working with he lists directors he enjoyed working with but at the same time you know he's presenting this theory that his parents forced him into it which i don't doubt but this whole sort of child slave persona yeah it's it's quite sad to hear because when you see him on these films it's not like he's sitting there looking like Morose. he's fed up <laughs> yeah. yeah and he's he's always played quite upbeat roles if you think of him in the goonies he's as mouth he's literally the cool guy of the pack who's always messing around and pulling tricks on the yeah um the house cleaner remember he's always like telling her in translating to her that they're a crack den keeping yeah. drugs and stuff and <laughs> i love his characters in all his films he's always kind of the upbeat character and I don't know, it's it's what's made him. So he, he must be quite grateful that he's made a living off it and a lot of money. I mean, over those times, and even the stuff in the Turtles work, he must have been paid a lot of money, and he's in a lot of big films. So it's sad to think that he didn't have a choice and he was kind of forced into it, but he must be realising that 
he's got a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, I, th- I think he does overall. But it's interesting that he he seemed to want to more talk about his work 1990 onwards, I thought. Like, he doesn't want to take credit for his films in the 80s, but which are the ones everyone has heard of, but the ones in the 90s he's happy to kind of plug. Yeah, and that's what I found quite strange. You know, when you talk about License to Drive and The Lost Boys and Goonies, it's such a good run. I don't think there's anyone in a decade that's had such a good run for a CV of films. And then he's on about in the 90s doing the voice for Donatello and the later films, some of them I've never heard of, working with English and um, directors from the UK. I re- literally had not heard of these films. And for me, I was like, surely you must be more proud of that earlier work. But it's, it's down to personal preference and no one's going to know better than him. But for me... I was like, oh, I, I would be absolutely buzzing if that was me and I'd done those films. Yeah. He's kind of not ashamed, but he's, he's kind of just wants to put them to bed and not talk about them. I guess he probably sees, and this is trying to get into his head, but the work he's done kind of 1990 onwards, because he must have been born, what, like early 70s, like is his adult work. So he's done that by choice, I guess. That's a good point, because like you said, he was forced into the early work as a child by his parents. And at, what do you say? He was five. How's he going to know what he wants to do and at yeah. eight years old want to be in these films? So I suppose he gets to choose now. But when I look at his, you know, his page and what he's done recently, a lot of them I've just not heard of. You know, sort of like the Crash and Burn TV series and he's in just random films. I've just literally, like, I think the latest Lost Boys a couple of years ago is the first and it's... I've just not heard of these no. massive films, and I've, you know, he still said he's in contact with Richard Donner and Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante. Joe I think Dante, you yeah. And you're like, I thought you could just, I don't know, I just expect him to be in bigger films now. Yeah, one I did want to ask you if you'd seen was The Birthday because he talked about that quite extensively. The 2004 film, yeah, and I've not seen it, and he said that's his proudest moment. So it's something I will probably go and check yeah, out. Yeah, same now. here. Because that's crazy when you think of the big blockbusters he's been in, and that's his most personal favorite choice. So. Yeah, it's it's. I'm very happy with the interview, and I'm very happy with the way he was. But I just kind of, he just wants to kind of forget about those early films. And for me, that's not tragic, but I'm ju- I'm just a bit gutted. Yeah, he does seem quite dismissive of kind of that '80s work. But kind of moving on to the bulk of the interview, where he did warm to having a conversation. Obviously, your magnetic and soothing personality <laughs> won him over it took a bit more work than kevin smith which was yeah. like hi kevin do you want to do an interview yeah sure what but, do you um, want to talk about so yeah hearing him talk about his music you can hear the passions there straight yeah. away he's definitely definitely much more into promoting that right now and i don't blame him because he's just released angelic to the core for me it's quite brave to do a 22 track album as kind of a, a big statement debut i know he's done it previous eps and singles and he's been in the band the truth movement but this is his big moment you know to get some of the guests on there like fred durst snoop dogg snoop dogg you know which is quite big names every genre is there he's done rock he's done indie he's done grunge he's done rap he's done every sort of style and tried to do it all over 22 tracks is just is madness yeah it it takes sometimes a band that are truly comfortable with what they're doing and know their musical style to kind of produce a double album correct me if i'm wrong please somebody but i don't remember many bands sort of doing a double album kind of very early on or as a debut in their career i know he's made albums previous to this but yeah i I played a few tracks from it like i mentioned earlier it wasn't my thing i'll be honest and to spend 10 years developing an album what you know what did you think of it did you play any of it i played some of it and um you know i'm very supportive in the way that i'm i'm 
proud of what he's doing because he's going out there and doing it. And we can talk in a moment about his performance recently on the network of TV. But um, I, I don't think his songwriting ability and the actual songs are really there. I don't think he's really got the overall kind of frontman or the music kind of writing skills to put out a double album. But I respect the fact he's still trying. And there's a lot of people out there that haven't got the balls to do it. So good on him. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to bring up Corey's Angels. Which is three or four very good-looking women dressed as angels, obviously. Yes. little white halos and wings that basically follow him around everywhere. All the promotion he does, all the films, premieres he goes to, he's got them with him. I think he lives with them by the looks of it. Excellent. So I'm not sure. I want some Mark Angels. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you've got plenty. But yeah, he certainly seemed a lot more comfortable talking about that. And bizarrely enough, like politics and sort of the the future of kind of humanity almost. Yeah. And it was was weird because he said he wasn't religious, but he talked a lot about praying and a lot about good versus evil. And uh, I I felt he was very spiritual. Yeah. But I, I get the sense he doesn't necessarily want to go to a church on Sunday and sees that as anything beneficial, which is which is absolutely fine. Again, you know with religion as long as what you're doing isn't harming anyone else that's, that's absolutely fine in my book i've not got a problem with it so we'll fair save play that to for a whole other yeah episode. that's a whole other topic yeah but um no he's 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 happy you know i i want to kind of address the most recent this is what why his name's trending on twitter right now he's done a performance on american tv on a talk show and the performance and i'm gonna say it isn't great at all you know it, it's, it's slightly surreal i mean you mentioned it to me a couple of weeks ago and I watched it, well, you showed it to me this morning, and it's bizarre. Yeah, it's it's weird. And he's miming, which he said he would never do, which I was a bit surprised by. But his dancing is very Michael Jackson. Yes. And I just, I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not really digging it. And it's nothing against him, but it's, it's people are putting it out there as, you know, one of the worst performances ever. It's not. I've seen a lot worse. Oh yeah. And good on him for trying, but people are mocking him and online there's, I've seen a lot of kind of negative comments towards him, but I've read he's going to go back and do another performance. So it must be doing well because I've seen that the single go for it is in the top 40 billboard chart. Well, there you go. And, and it comes back to that kind of old adage, no publicity is bad publicity. Yeah, like all publicity is good publicity. So yeah, they may be talking about what a fool he's made of himself or whatever on television. But if, like you say, they're booking him to go back on there, imagine how many people are then going to tune into that show to kind of see what bizarre dances and what bizarre performance he's going to put on. And it also makes me think that if he does announce a tour, I mean, I think he was mentioning he wants to do a world tour on there. If he actually goes out there and does tour now, joking aside, he probably would sell out quite big venues because people would want to go and just kind of either laugh at him or support him but people would still go because they've seen that performance and it's kind of the thing to do now like, oh let's go and see if he is that bad or you know yeah and it gets his name back in people's minds and hopefully those people will then listen to this hopefully <laughs> so are you going to go now and check out more of his album are you going to go and watch more of his films are you going to check out the more recent films he's done or i would quite like to see the birthday if i'm honest just because he spoke about it so extensively Probably won't listen to any more of the album, if I'm brutally honest. But yeah, you know, you look at his resume of movies, you know, I'll happily watch The Goonies, The Lost Boys, The Burbs, which is always on ITV2 anyway. You know, I'll happily watch those films any time. Drive Me Crazy is one, or is it Driving Me Crazy? Something like Drive Me Crazy, I think. Yeah, is one I've not seen in such a long time, but I feel like I should go back and watch again. 
I'm going to put you on the spot right now, okay? Tell me kind of your top films by him. What What is your favourite characters or your favourite films that he's been in? Well, I think the ones we've kind of mentioned previously, obviously Goonies, obviously Lost Boys, but I know you sort of asked me to, you know, think about perhaps what was the first film I saw him in. And looking through his IMDb page, it's probably going to be The Fox and the Hound. Okay. Which I would have not known it was him at the time. And I would have, you know, probably been very young and not known, you know, the concept of somebody doing a voice for a character as bizarre as that sounds. But yeah, probably The Fox and the Hound, which I, I really it's actually 1981, quite like. So- yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't know that was him until I listened to the interview and he was talking about it. I was quite surprised. Okay. But um, I think my first time I saw him was probably something like The Goonies or Gremlins. Yeah. Um, and I instantly fell in love with him and thought, you know, this is great. And then I had the luxury of then watching Stand By Me. Yeah. And I think in that film, he, it's probably my favourite performance of him. I think he's absolutely fantastic as Teddy. He's, he's brilliant. He shows every emotion. And then we got The Lost Boys, which I know he's not the main character, but... Working in that comic shop and being part of that gang, you just you just love him. He's just just the coolest eighties guy I know. Yeah, and I think you know, Stand by Me certainly for that era of his films stands out as something very different. You know, a lot of the other roles are quite comedic. You know, The Burbs, Gremlins, you know, even The Lost Boys. But yeah, Stand by Me kind of shows a different side of him and a different range of what he's capable of. Yeah, and the only other film that kind of did that for me as well was The Burbs. Yeah, back in 1989, which I think, again, working alongside Tom Hanks, it must have been amazing. Yeah, especially so young as well. So, I mean, I don't really have much else to say. Just obviously thanks to Corey because, you know, he's not going to be doing a lot of press at the moment and he's taking a lot of time out for me. So I'm really grateful for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, to kind of sit and have a conversation for an hour. Yeah, exactly. So a big thank you. Um, Obviously, check out his album if you want to to hear what we've been talking about. It's out there on angelictothecore.com. And let us know on Facebook or Twitter, you know, your favourite kind of Corey Feldman memories or favourite films or if you did like the album, tell us. Yeah, we'd like to know. Um, He's very interactive as well. So if you are on Twitter and Facebook, tag him in because he's very quick to reply and very quick to kind of respond, which I respect as well. So Just don't catfish him. (laughs) Yes, as you heard, do not catfish him. So let's talk about episode three. Now, we started pretty good here. You know, Kevin Smith, Corey Feldman. I kind of want to take a bit of a break from the interviews and let the people out there get to know me and you a bit more. Okay. I'm not saying we do a special just on us. Right. Is there anyone out there that you would love to talk about that we could literally make a special of and we could just talk our hearts away about how much we love someone? Well, we kind of hit Kevin Smith in the first episode. When I think of my favourite directors from when I was really into film, kind of Kevin Smith is one of those. There's another name that he obviously mentioned on his interview that I could absolutely talk for hours about that a guy whose films I still love to this day and still watch regularly. Don't know if you're familiar with him, a guy named John Hughes. Oh, that little fella, yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's dedicate a whole episode to the work of John Hughes next time. Let's talk about our favourite films, the films that kind of got us into his work, what they mean to us, the songs behind it. Oh, yes. The characters he's given, the quotes. Let's just give a whole dedicated special to John Hughes. Sounds good to me. So thanks for listening. Go on markandme.com for our Twitter, our Facebook and our main website. And on there you can go to iTunes, you can go to Podomatic and listen to us. We've had a couple of reviews already, which is crazy for only doing one episode. So thanks to both of those people. Yeah, thank you very much. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks time to give you our thoughts and our love. Let's just, we can spoil it now, our love for John Hughes. Sounds good. See you in a couple of weeks. (laughs) 